What if your ability to not be normal is not that you're abnormal, but the way the normal people are creating the world, the world in a normal state is something that you don't get. Like go to a bar these days and everybody's on their phone, right? So you come in and you feel like you have to be on your phone, but that just stresses you out, right? And so you're like, I don't want to go to the bar. So the question is, are you not normal because you're not going to the bar when everybody else is going to the bar? Are you not going to the bar because that version of normal doesn't tie to you? So welcome to the podcast. I am speaking today with Taylor Cole. Taylor Cole, we've gone back, I don't know, a decade or more in the air sports community through skydiving and base jumping. We've probably hung out and jumped on three or four different continents together by now. Yes, for sure. <laughs> and uh, tell me a little bit more about you. You're a champion in crew, which is it's called canopy relative work, which is a type of skydiving where you open your parachutes way up high as a team, and then you kind of link up with one another by wrapping your feet around each other's lines and doing all kinds of crazy things. Tell me a little bit more. What are a couple of other bullet points that might be interesting for our listeners to hear? Yeah, you know, crew is the thing that when I started base, I, I got into crew and, uh, you know, I met into met with uh, Will Kiddo and Sean Jones and Eric Gallen and and we went from sucking really bad to being really good at crew, you know, basically taking a four stack of parachutes and going top to bottom as fast as we can and taking on the likes of, of uh, you know, France and their amazing team and the Russians, you know, the people that got us into the sport. So that's kind of ridiculous. And then obviously, while that was all going on, we were base jumping. So I was, I was in the early days of wingsuiting. I'm sure you were too. So, you know, not the earliest days, but 2007s to 2010, jumping off cliffs with wingsuits that really didn't fly all that great and you know had a hard time you know uh, with any sort of form of consistency to be good at wingsuits at the time i was i was getting my master's degree in fluid mechanics so that i could understand why is this thing not flying and how can we make this thing fly better nice was that causal was that something you were doing because of wingsuiting and for for listeners who might not know wingsuits are if you've ever seen those youtube videos of people flying flying squirrel suits through the trenches and trees and down mountains that's wingsuiting so back to this question you went to school to get a degree in fluid mechanics because of wingsuiting, or did it just happen to a lineup? Because of wingsuiting. <laughs> wow. Yeah, amazing. I, I'd never known that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I ended up going back and getting a degree in fluid mechanics from U University of California, Riverside. And yeah, that was just a lot of work. But at the same time, you know, we were flying wingsuits. I was putting them in the water channel that I built for the lab. You know, I built a six-ton water channel for University of California Riverside where we were doing planar laser-induced fluorescence and particle image velocimetry. So something new to the to the UC system, but I was I was working with those companies and trying to bring this this level of discovery of turbulent kinetic energy down to something that I could put in a tank and then basically check the airflow against it by firing a laser. So you fire a laser in a plane twice really fast and you know that time that the difference between the laser pulses and then as long as that matches the speed in that plane to where you have a particle that obviously in those two pulses doesn't go outside of that plane, as long as it stays within that plane and the rule was it couldn't go more than half the plane then uh, the, the computer at the time could compute, you know, vectors and you'd end up with a whole bunch of vectors and you can, you know, sit there and figure out turbulent kinetic energy and a bunch of other stuff. So you could figure out, you know, partially why a wingsuit was flying and why it wasn't. And a lot of our wingsuits back then were doing nothing more than deflecting. We could have been jumping with a big 
a big piece of foam in the shape of <laughs> in the shape of a wingsuit. <laughs> yeah, wow, things have definitely come a long way, and I, I do remember those days where it was just about having basically fabric between your arms and your legs but we still had this whole story about how it was flying you know we we're creating these wings it's flying man and really yeah it was just kind of falling sideways yeah i spent a whole month out in in swiss valley and you know i'd get across the valley you know five times out of 50 jumps you know i'd be like those were flying you know but the other ones i'd just go blah, 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 just go nowhere <laughs> Yeah. So it's it's been a long journey for wingsuiting for those of us in, in this sport from both a technical perspective to how, how the sport has grown grown technically and also just our skills and also psychologically and how we grow as people through through this kind of a, a life path. And so I'm I'm really curious to hear from you some reflections and something that you've learned from this path of uh really both really getting into the intellectual side of understanding what's going on in the sport mechanically and how to, you know, go from never having done any uh, canopy relative work before to becoming a champion at it. And also the personal and the psychological and emotional components of the time. I know that we've, we've both had, we've both experienced a lot of loss in, in the sports and also just a lot of constant risk, a lot of constant danger, a lot of ways that our egos get in the way and, ways that we create stories that bullshit ourselves into believing that we're safe when we're not. Uh, I'm curious how that has impacted, how that journey has impacted not only the way that you approach these sports, but also the way that you approach life and business and teams. Yeah, you just nailed it. I mean, you know, I'm pretty bought in on therapy and, you know, I spend a lot of time, you know, weekly therapy, you know, whether I feel like I'm in a bad state or not, you know, I just feel like that constant feedback is something that's good to me. And and just recently, you know, just, uh, you know, my company's doing well, Burble's doing well. I finally came down to, you know, I discovered my purpose in life about three years ago. And my purpose is, is you know, really applying, you know, this idea of, you know, just helping people understand what out of the box looks like, you know, see things different from a different light, you know, understand different perspectives, and then do it in a way that's in a very tailored fashion. You know, I'm very uh, people person, and I really love to talk to people. But but what but what I finally discovered is I have this two-sided tailor and it's dorkiness, which you'd expect from, you know, my, my day job as a chief technology officer of a Navy lab and my crazy side, which is something that Taylor has always had. And that's like mustache book and this crazy parties for base jumpers and all this kind of stuff. Well, it's always had that dichotomy my whole life, you know, and, and I tell people that I was a valedictorian in high school, but I also had 60 hours community service. So, you know, it was always, you know, I loved this idea of never being trapped by normal, just there's no way. So with that being said, and I truly believe that, that I'm, I, I can never be normal, nor do I want to be, that it's allowed me to really push the bounds in so much of these things. And and so it's been a long journey to try to figure out how this all works. Uh, you know, I've struggled through a lot of it. You know, I was a pro skater before I got into skydiving and, and you know, I was 22nd in the world in vert rollerblading. X Games 2001 in, in San Francisco. I was a big wall climber. I've been up uh, uh, El Capitan um, a bunch of times, uh, Zion. I had a family cabin there in Yosemite. So it was, it was always like, where can I go to push the bounds? And what I've learned now about myself is I'm just really good at grit. I just don't know how to quit. And I and because of that, I really get excited about things that are hard. And so it's really taken me down this path where it's it's really challenging. So you bring up rotations. And you know if you're going to rotate top to bottom as fast as you can, you're going to get your parachute smaller and smaller. 
you know, we lost a teammate early on in, in training, you know, died. You know, we knew what we were doing was very dangerous. We've had, you know, I had two of my nearest death experiences were from crew, from the team, you know, being totally unconscious, you know, falling through the sky, uh, having my reserve come out in the middle of our stack and basically landing with a teammate on a reserve that had a line over, you know, just the kind of stuff that, that shatters your idea that that uh, you're different than the world and that, and that, you know, everybody else is dying and getting hurt, but you're going to be fine. Because, just like you're saying, you just convince yourself that it won't be like that for me. And, and so with the loss and with this, these massive lessons learned that, oh my God, I can break myself. Or, oh my God, I can die. You know, I've got into these sports in a way that I, I do talk myself into it. I say, hey, I'm a world-class, you know, canopy pilot. So obviously I'm going to be a little bit safer in base jumping than other people. But then again, you know, I still hurt myself base jumping, you know, so I really like that play with the game. And we all know that base jumping is not about telling yourself that you're going to be fine no matter what. It's really about convincing yourself you've thought through all the ways you can hurt yourself or die on the jump. And people that think that way, it takes years to come up with that kind of thinking. But, you know, I try to scare myself more than most people on an exit because I'm thinking through everything that could go wrong. And then I enjoy jumping, you know, so it's just a different mentality. Interesting, the subtleties between different ways that you could experience grit or describe it. You know, for many people, grit is just, I don't give up. I do things like regardless of how scared I am or, you know, regardless of what other people say. And that is not going to get you a long career in base jumping. It's not going to work. <laughs> Nothing can guarantee you a long career in base jumping, but that in particular is not. You, you can't just, you know, in, in some sense, grit your way through making a bad decision that gets you killed. But still, you mentioned grit as something very important. And it seems like the way that you've described it is to to be persistent and also aware, and maybe persistent in the awareness, persistent in the deepening self-awareness of, you know, as you said, how, how can I pre-experience, pre-simulate you know, all the different ways that I might die so that they are in my system and I'm able to react and respond with that information on board and not just, you know, power on through. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, I learned that on the dorky side, you know, I was running the the Navy's predictive analysis of human behavior group for eight years and uh, basically deploying all over and training people how to kill and capture bad guys, you know, with math. And, you know, you can't use that first level of grit. You know, you can't, you're working 18, 19 hour days when you're deployed and you're doing math the whole time. And if your measure is that I've got enough grit to do math all day, but you're not actually capturing or killing any bad guys, then you're 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 actually not doing anything useful, and you know it's like you're not going to be there very long. So 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 there's this constant stress in a life like that I live that because you're always wanting to see the output, you always want to see that 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 you're doing something that matters. But sometimes that's frustrating because we're all human. And humans, I think, because we make mistakes, we learn all the time, and so it, you have to kind of put up with that and. You know, that's where Burble comes in. You know, Burble's been five years the company. Do I think it's going to be a billion-dollar company? Yes. Do I know it's going to succeed? Yes. Do I doubt it heavily every day? For sure. You know, it's just like, uh, you know, at some point, you just have to just keep going. And then that's when that first level of grit is. But the rest of the time, you got to think really hard about doing the right thing. So it's crazy. Yeah. So so let's get into I'd love to hear a little bit more about Burble and what Burble is. And 
specifically what it is about your life path that made you, that brought you to be so interested in this topic. And I'll let you intro exactly what it is as we get into that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when people hear that I'm about to revolutionize the way we tell immersive stories to kids with autism, people are blown away that I don't have a kid that's autistic. Autistic, You know, they're blown away. I don't even have autism in my family. You know, they're kind of shocked and they're like, well, this doesn't make any sense. But then when you actually start understanding how I ended up there, to your point, it's pretty fascinating. So I got to go back a little ways and you'll kind of understand this. But, you know, I was base jumping. I got caught base jumping in Hawaii when I was out with a bunch of my predictive analysis people. So I ended up getting a whole bunch of engineers kicked out of Hilton Properties for five years, right? And so then the Navy was like, oh my God, you know, we're going to fire Taylor. So I, I ended up with a, a big level note from a an admiral saying, hey, you embarrassed the Navy. This is the worst thing ever. So one of my punishments was I had to go to Bahrain and, and go work on something that wasn't necessarily killing or capturing bad guys, but it ended up being remarkably awesome. You know, I got three months to use a supercomputer. And basically, by the end of three months, I presented a, a presentation to the admiral there. And he was like, are you kidding me? Is this true? And I was like, it's true. I've double checked it everywhere. So I can't tell you what it was I did, but I can tell you that you've heard about what it was I did. So when you when you heard about you know Iran skirting oil sanctions by doing all these dodgy things, that's what I discovered. So when I came home and they were still trying to fire me, the Navy's highest think tank, the Strategic Studies Group, a uh, four-star admiral came out and uh, wanted to see this product that I came up with. And he handed me a business card and he says, hey, I want you to apply to this think tank. So I applied to the think tank. And of course, I got on it, you know, because when does the four-star come ask you to be on a on a think tank? And so I got to spend two years, unlimited budget, more or less, you know, visiting the top companies in the world. You know, I still have mentors that are previous secretaries of the Navy, uh, mentors that are running Microsoft, you know, just major humans. And uh, and in doing that, I really had two discoveries that I wanted to start a company. One was on farm analytics and a new way to run crop insurance. And it was like a math-based model. And, and it would have worked. And, and I think it could have revolutionized the way we do crop insurance. But the other one that I was realizing was, is that the way we were all receiving story is getting less and less the use of my own creativity in the way that I understand the story. So versus like, you know, the way that Shakespeare told a story and now you still have to go to college to figure out what he actually meant, right? It was very open-ended. AM radio in the 60s that I used to love with my dad was very open-ended, you know, so my imagination could be applied to the story. Nowadays, it's not that way. You go to a movie and it doesn't matter if you're high or drunk or sober, you're getting the same perspective. People talk at the same level of perspective about movies. And augmented reality, partial reality, uh, virtual reality, these things are all feeding us even more of the picture that the way that it was designed for us to understand it, that there's less of our own interpretation of how we're going to apply to it. So now fast forward sometime later when I started this company where I wanted to bring the theater to the children's bedroom, you know, basically I've always envisioned a kid takes a book into a tent and that tent is full of lights and sounds. And they start reading that book and the tent comes to life to bring the story to life. And now because of that, I can take details out of the story. I don't need the story to explain every minute detail of this dragon that's attacking us, but I could just say, what is that over there? And, you know, and, and all of a sudden your mind goes crazy. Well, you know, it was about that time that I, I uh, went to just a regular psychologist and um, just for 
something I was struggling with at the time. It was a memory issue, and it was because I had a post uh, or I had a traumatic brain injury from a, a a crew accident. And he's like, "Hey, I think you need to go talk to this guy at Little Melinda because I've been looking for a person like you, and I think you meet one of that." So, long story short, hundred thousand dollars worth of testing later, and you know, a, a PhD student apply, uh, you know, assigned to me for three months. I find out that I have, you know, a good working memory, a good IQ, a good visual memory, but then when you get to audio memory, I have one sixteenth of a percentile. So I have what's called audio processing disorder, which now they're finding out a lot of kids have this. Now you find my tie to autism, right? Because a lot of kids with autism have audio processing disorder, right? Their ears don't know how to how to interpret what it is they're hearing. So so I found out when I'm scared, when I'm anxious, or when I'm tired. My ears interpret what I'm hearing a lot worse. When I'm none of those things, it works really well. So now I'm really sensitive to this kind of stuff. Well, you know, in my job, this makes me have a superpower because I never take notes because note taking is still is still audio. So is reading. This is something that most people don't think about because when when you note take, you're listening you're listening to what you're writing through your ears. So what you're interpreting and you're listening this way. So I'll write the wrong stuff. And so, and then I'll treat it as, as truth because it's written down and then it's wrong. So, so my whole life, I've just kind of skimmed the top of conversations I'm hearing and, and storing it as working memory. And then, so I get a different perspective of what happened in a meeting and it's kind of a different perspective. It makes me kind of out of the box. So now you get to my company. And so the company, you know, one of the first things we had to solve for Burble Incorporated was trying to figure out how were we going to replicate lights and sounds in an environment that we controlled. So we started with pure theater. We started with gobo wheels, you know, like there's like cartridges and then you diffuse the light and you could change the, the cartridge to be like different shapes and you could create, you know, mosaic flow and texture on the wall. And we started with that. And then and then before you know it, we we kind of realized pixel mapping was the thing, you know, three years ago that was really challenging to solve. You basically take a very long string of LEDs, you know, right right now I can handle tens of thousands of them. And then you basically run them through a DMX controller, a way that that you control lighting in a in a rock show or something. And so, you know, four years ago we were doing these stories in these cubes in the library and we were finding out that it, kids loved it. But we started like having these autistic kids come in and they just really enjoyed it. You know, these are kids that can't sit through a classroom or can't can't sit in front of their parents for any more than a minute. The average autism uh, kid with autism sleeps two hours a night. You know, these are major issues. And so I got involved with a neurodevelopmental center four year, three and a half years ago. And we started doing beta and efficacy testing with what we were designing. And But the problem was I still had this this environment that would fit in the kid's bedroom, but I had to hide a... A $150 an hour sound guy in the closet with a, a $200 a day DMX controller. So it wasn't quite sellable. It wasn't going, you know, most families weren't going to want this, right? Because it's just silly. But since then, we did massive amounts of engineering and I own the patents and all this stuff, but we can control all this lighting and all this sound with a Raspberry Pi. So the product I'm coming out with in nine months is going to be a, a tent that goes over the bed of a kid with autism. And then when that kid brings a book, any of the books they want read to them that night, into the tent, the RFID chip in the book reacts with the tent. The tent starts reading them that story and using the lights and sounds in a calming way. When the kid falls asleep, there's a sensor to let us know he's not moving anymore. Then it, it stops reading the story and it, and it continues that theme from the story into a calming environment that we've been efficacy testing. So, so we, can, we can help put a kid to sleep and keep a kid asleep with autism.
and the price point for this is going to be $375. So it's not a $50,000 DMX controller. Yeah, far more accessible than, yeah, and also having a sound engineer nearby. It, uh, yeah, having some random dude in your kid's closet. We don't have to have that anymore. And then the model, the actual model that I've got in the lab is going to be the next model, which is going to come out in 2024, which is kids reading. So it's the dream that I've always had, which is, you know, any of your accelerated reading books that you're working with in, in class, you know, that kid that's used to staring at their iPad that now has to read a book. These kids are struggling because they don't know how to use their imagination. And this is outside of autism now. So my dream has always been to have this tent where now you add voice recognition. Now you add, add uh, feedback in the tent, but now you bring any of these books and you start reading the book at any point you left off and that environment starts filling out the, the details. So what is the technology that we uh, more or less created? It's called minimally defined immersion. So it's this idea that I immerse you. What's key about immersion is when you're immersed, you don't care what you're looking at. Like you're never immersed by the person you're looking at. You're immersed by everything else. So if you meet immersion, both hemispheres of your brain are, are active. And so when both your hemispheres are working, you're attentive, you're calming. There's a lot of things that are happening that, that are beneficial, but more, more exciting than that, I don't need to show you the beach for you to, to make you think you're at the beach. And so we're doing it as minimally defined as we can, and that's why we're using pixel mapping. And it will never be a high density of pixel mapping because eventually I'll get to a, a low resolution screen and I'm trying to avoid all that. So my company says we will never put a phone or a tablet in a kid's hand. So the whole point is we are going to wrap the technology around the kid forever. And lastly, I'll say, you know, my, my deep, dark dream of this company is to always have reactive toys. So instead of a toy that has a battery and, and does everything you want the toy to do, what if that toy was just dumb, but it had, you know, three RFID chips in it. So I knew exactly the access of that toy. And now that toy's in an environment that knows the toys there then all of a sudden that environment can play along and that environment can can get your imagination going about a toy that's actually pretty dumb. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. The whole inversion there of, you know, like the, instead of just this, this smart toy that suddenly, you know, like a, like a screen becomes a new addiction, becomes something gamified that you're now interacting with as an object. Instead, it's just a modifier for your overall environment. And brings in all of the senses it doesn't have you focus on some object and what it does it brings you back out into your whole world and how it changes absolutely and now all of a sudden technology is not between you and the thing you're playing with the technology is around you and it's not it's not in your hand anymore so so how are you measuring outcomes and what what have you been seeing when you've been testing this with with kids yeah so just recently i've done 30 families so i have a big setup of this it's 10 by 10 by 10 feet um, and it sits over at the Bourne's Youth Innovation Center in Riverside. So it's public facing. The city of Riverside runs the camps. And so what was interesting when I set up the camps and I did some marketing for it three months ago, the first three camps, people signed up for them, but no one showed up. And so I was like, oh man, this sucks. Like, like uh, maybe this isn't good for autism, even though I'd done tons of efficacy testing. And all of a sudden this, you know, very strong-willed, strong, forward-leaning mom showed up with a very autistic son. He was nonverbal, like on the very lowest level of scale of autism. And she said, hey, I don't know what you're going to be able to do for my kid, but he's here. And so we started telling, I started telling stories and that kid stayed for 25 minutes. He was the least that's ever stayed, the lowest level that we've ever had someone stay. And the whole time he crawled on his back. 
around inside of the lights. And the whole time I was praying to God, like, please don't electrocute this autistic kid for my first day of being in the public. And, and so she started crying at the end of it. And she said, hey, my kid has never sat still for more than 10 seconds. And then so she got on Facebook and she started unleashing all the other moms. And I go, what are you doing? And she goes, well, I'm the, I run a, a autism group. There's autism group run leads in every city and I'm the one from Riverside. So before you knew it, all my classes filled and everybody started showing. And what I learned was a lot of these parents of kids with autism, they don't want to go in public to go demo a project when they're embarrassed. They could get embarrassed that their kid doesn't behave the way that that company maybe expects them to behave. Well, they all really quickly found out that I'm a fun dude with kids with autism. Like the whole time I see an autistic kid, I see a superpower that hasn't been discovered yet for every single one of them. And I enjoy the heck out of them, no matter what they're doing. You know, if they're taking their clothes off and that's how they want to watch a movie, watch a story, I'm good with it. The parents are never, but I'm like, you do you, you know, like let's, let's figure you out. You know, a lot of these tactile things are real hardcore problems for a lot of uh, kids with autism. You know, like they don't like the feeling of clothes and they don't want it off or the lights or the sounds, anything that's a, anything that's touch, light, see, sound, you know, is all, it couldn't be, you know, discombobulated. But then I ended up doing all these stories with these kids and the vast majority of them, 90% of them made it a full hour of storytelling. And it was the full range. And the thing is, these stories are using both your hemispheres. And I'm just reading from a book. And this big environment with big loudspeakers, you know, I, I tell a lot of the parents that come in, I was like, did you ever think that 1900 LEDs and five big speakers was going to help your kid? And all of them were like, no, and half of them cried. And, and my favorite one, you know, I'd say maybe 60, 70% of the kids come in with headphones on because their therapist has told them that they need to con the amount of sound they're hearing. They need to not be in places that have flashing lights. And the stupidity around this is, and, and I'm not a scientist in this field, so I should be careful saying stupidity. The thing is, we have this belief that a kid is normal and there's a bunch of normal kids. And if you don't behave amongst the normal kids, you need to be booted out into a different class, right? And so the two sides that you can go to is the SDC side, the over to the side where you're hanging out on the, what you know everybody thinks of as a short bus right? The short bus kids go over here, which is all the kids that don't behave right. And then over here, it's just as bad as, as those kids, but they're all the gate and AP kids, you know, that are too smart for their classroom. And the problem is no one's normal. I mean, who's getting screwed in that situation is the normal kids because they're being told they're normal and they, they don't think they have a superpower that they haven't yet discovered. They literally just think they're like everybody else. But these other kids on either side are special and the workforce needs them. And families need them and friends need these people. But we just immediately just boot them out of the category. So as an example, this one kid came in and, and uh, he had his headphones on. He was 13 years old and very autistic, you know, um, had a hard time looking at anything. He got through an hour of story and I started to sense that, wow, there's something really amazing about this kid. So I have a story that's an adult story that we wanted to prove it works for adults too. So we have a cussing story and lots of killing and screaming and it sounds like a horror horror movie. And so I told him, I said, hey, I want to do something. Let's just see what happens. I have this on uh, video because I had my GoPro going and I walked him through 38 cues and I said, just be quiet and you process 38 cues and I want at the end you, you to tell me a story that you imagined. And so I just quietly just went through 38 cues. No one talked. It was about 18 minutes or so. And then at the end of that, this kid went off. He wouldn't stop. His mom said he literally wouldn't stop all the way home refining his story. But the first story he came up with 
when I checked it against the cues with the story he wrote, he did not miss a single cue. As in, if there was a cue that changed the lights and sounds, he he interpreted it into his story. So basically, he had a, a perfect memory of lighting and sound cues. So, oh my God, like there's not a, a person we know that can do that. I mean, I could play this for you and there's, and you miss a ton because that's just, that's hard. But, but that's the whole point. And so, of course, there, you know, the mom says, you know, he slept through the night for the first time ever that night. When she asked him some months later, I got a testimonial yesterday on this. You know, when she asked him some months later, you know, what he needs to calm down because he's really um, out of control coming back from school. Uh, he said that that story time with lights. So, you know, it's crazy, you know, and I and it was every kid with autism. It, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, just bring me the good ones. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, bring me only the high functioning ones. It was just everybody, nonverbal, everything. Yeah. Wow. That's that is really fascinating. I mean, I can sort of understand like if you have issues in training your your senses to, you know, the environment as it is normally with just I don't know, by normal, I mean, the way that people are commonly interacting or just in like a, in a social setting where people are expecting you to be able to respond and interact and then put somebody into a different kind of setting and find that they actually are able to track an environment extremely well. Uh, and it just might be a different kind of environment and that this becomes something that's fulfilling for them that has them feel connected to the reality that they're in and not the, some usual amount of disconnected that they might feel with their sensory processing disorder. And uh, I think it's really interesting that he ended up getting a really good night's sleep that night. Yeah, because he's using his brain. So you said something that makes me think of something that's that's fascinating, right? So if you're on either of these sides, what if your ability to not be normal is not that you're abnormal, but the way the normal people are creating the world, the world in a normal state is something that you don't get. Like go to a bar these days and everybody's on their phone, right? So you come in and you feel like you have to be on your phone, but that just stresses you out, right? And so you're like, I don't want to go to the bar. So the question is, are you not normal because you're not going to the bar when everybody else is going to the bar? Are you not going to the bar because that version of normal doesn't tie to you? You know, like I don't watch football. I don't watch baseball. I don't watch anything on TV. And I can't tell you how many people have told me that's not normal. And I'm like, well, that side of normal just doesn't connect with me. Like it doesn't, it, it doesn't make me feel like I want to be normal. So I'm going to start participating over here and I live in the mountains now, right? So it's like, I think this idea of normal is stupid. And I think that everybody is mentally diverse and we try to force people into normal. Like there is some purpose of school being a forcing function up to high school because it's supposed to design citizenry. It's supposed to build people that can pay taxes and vote and, you know, this kind of stuff. But, but then at some point we break that by making everybody as much the same as possible. And then you go into this like diverse world of college. And I think it's just a weird, a weird state. So I'm championing, you know, thinking differently as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds a lot like you're taking your experience where, you know, you've had undiagnosed for a long time sensory processing disorder, audio processing disorder, and whatever other, you know, neurodiversion, neurodiversity comes with that. And you found a life that, that matched whatever was going on for you internally. You know, you, Got into mountain unicycling. I've heard that for sensory processing disorder, just in general, from a you know talking to a developmental psychologist, that uh, movements of your body that are across the meridian and like uneven are good for increasing connectivity across those two lobes of the brain and helps for sensory processing disorder. That's fascinating. Yeah, a, a coach of mine has a story about how he he started hacky sacking and doing kind of things like that in his in his teens. 
And then he later had a daughter and she was diagnosed with sensory processing disorder, which is somewhat genetic. And so he's like, wow, so I must have had this too. And it's just natural that the things that I came up with to do with my time were actually exactly what my body was needing. Like it already just knew what to do. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. And so for those of us who found these different edge cases in these different sports and different lifestyles that make us feel with whatever is going on internally for us connected to our world, it's interesting that you're now doing this for helping others, you know, get out of the box of feeling disconnected from their environment and trying something new with this tenting idea and these these stories and the lights and saying, hey, well, what if this is a, a reality that you resonate with? And I'm curious, where does that go? When, when you start having, you know, a lot of kids with autism at scale using these tents and starting to really collect a lot of data, what different types of experiences work for different types of kids and how that interacts with how they then show up in their life afterward, with, you know, whether it gives them better sleep or whether they they end up finding something. Maybe one of these days, somebody will take something from that tent and then recognize a superpower that is usable in the rest of their life. Some interest in music or in visual art or something. Music is a fun one. So take your room the way you're sitting in it right now and now just populate it with LEDs and sound. And now all of a sudden, if I control you know, a Berkeley College of Music you know, designed course on learning guitar, you can learn a guitar, I'm convinced, even though I haven't proven this yet, I'm convinced you can learn a guitar better in an in a immersive room than you can any other way. So when you actually have a kid that's getting used to just stories I make, but now all of a sudden their their therapist is working with them on things they need to learn, right? Because math is beautiful taught as a story, right? So uh, Common Core was based on Singapore-based math. Everybody can look this up. And Singapore dominates the, the, the world of education when it comes to math. And it's because they they teach an open-ended story-based math. It's less about getting the number right, and it's more about was your process, did it make sense? Did it, would it have got you to the answer had you known how to do the math? And, and you're, you're going to pass. So story is so powerful. So what it really is about is taking story and using that to deliver messaging to where you can actually start teaching people. Because a lot of these kids with autism stand zero chance to learn something. Like zero, like this first kid that I had had an iPad with all the feelings on it, and she was well into years of training of trying to get him to learn how to push the feeling that he was feeling at that given time. So it's crazy. Like I'm convinced you can learn how to cook better with an immersive room. Yeah, I mean, definitely even just better than a screen for many reasons to begin with, which one of the reasons why people are getting into VR and AR. But I think also just something about uh, that inversion that we were talking about before where the kid picks up a book brings the book in to into the tent and then the experiences is happening all around them and it's about the experiences not the interaction with the device and and then you could learn all kinds of different ways that people respond to that and give them a for basically create an environment that is as diverse as the neurodiversity that we are trying to bring into this reality yes that's the key yeah so yeah, you know, I haven't thought of this, but if you were to take the brain that I have in these tents and you were to, you know, just, you know, put these thousand LEDs in your room with duct tape and put the four speakers in the room, the technology that I own is pretty exciting. I, as long as you have that connected to the internet, I could be in a different part of the country or world and I can push you content right now. To, so any tent that sits anywhere, I can push the content to it. 
I could write something specifically to you. I could push it. You can write back to me and say, hey, I, I need more blues and I could change the blues and I could send it to you. So even though we don't have this in the first model, it's definitely built in that the therapist can work with the, the child. And instead of everybody getting the same story, you know, when, that's, when that child comes back and says, hey, you know what, the green book, right now I'm thinking of doing it by colors of books, so for the autism. So, you know, they'll like the green book, which is like the green mood, the red book, the red mood. We've really messed around with moods when we built the company. And I have calming moods. I have inspiring moods. If you're ever in Riverside and you want to come just do a work day with me, come into the Youth Innovation Center and, and work in one of these moods. And you'll see after about an hour, you're literally inspired or you're calm. But I've also got one that drives you insane. So it's a, we've used it in torture a lot of time, but it's really, it's well known that when you have. Wait a minute. Double click on that a little bit. We've used it in torture a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. So the army used to do this where, where they would play sounds over speakers to stress out people, right? So sounds that stress out people are non-rhythmic. They're lots of highs and lows, right? And you could imagine it, right? So, so this particular environment we have is, sounds kind of like a really bad techno song, but your brain really struggles to put together the techno and then it's got buzzing bees. And the reason why buzzing bees are bad is because buzzing bees are at a certain frequency. Be, like God created our world in a great way. When you hear a bee coming, everybody hears a bee coming, right? Because it's that perfect frequency that really messes with your brain. Then you match that with flashing yellow lights, right? There's a reason why cops and everybody use flashing yellow lights. It really jacks up a human's brain. It gets us to be attentive instantly, right? And we can't get away from that attentiveness, right? So now you put that in an environment that you're working in and it will drive you nuts. I've worked in it. The longest I've made it in the environment was an hour and a half. And at the end, I was useless the rest of the day. (laughs) Wow. So, and I put autistic kids in there and it's fascinating. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I always ask the parent, I'm like, I've got a calming environment. They're like, oh yeah, that's great. Hey, so we've got this environment that we've designed for military style torture. This is just flat out torture. Can I put your kid in it? And they're like, yeah. But what's fascinating is like the vast majority of kids that are autistic will sit in this environment, but their therapists are telling them avoid lights and sounds that are stressful. Well, wait a minute. We get back to the problem. Stressful by normal people's design. This is absolutely stressful. Like this is, there's nothing about this is, that is interpreted as anything but stressful. And all of a sudden, the kid's not falling apart any faster than I would. <laughs> and I'd be curious to what extent you can like get a subjective report from these kids to determine that this was actually a pleasant experience or a calming experience or not. But a, they sat in it. Yeah, I mean that's one metric. I didn't. I don't enjoy it. <laughs> I've sat in it for probably a hundred hours at this point. Like I'm trying to tune myself to it. Like it's it's fascinating. I wonder to what extent that interacts with your audio processing disorder, and if there's something about it that's satisfying in its chaoticness that actually you enjoy. Well, you just mentioned that I'm good visually, right? And I'm not good hearing, so I don't want the story to be everything that I have to interpret in, to- in order to get the what I'm doing. So. You know, when I was in this testing, you know, some of the things he would have me do is like fourth grade level books. He'd be like, no, I want you to read the chapter and I want you to answer the four questions at the back. And he's like, Taylor, you're wrong on 90% of the answers. And he's like, how'd you get through kindergarten? I was like, I don't don't know. Like both my parents were teachers. One of them was special ed teacher. They just never, ever, ever made me feel anything but normal. 
They just said, you just keep doing you. You know, there's no way that this is going to be bad for anything, any other reason. Like you just keep doing you. So when I found out I had this, I, I ended up asking my, you know, Dr. Travis Fogel, you know, head of neuro, neuro developmental science over at uh, Loma Linda, the director. And, and I call him up all the time and I said, hey, so you're telling me I have a learning disability. He's like, no, you had a learning disability when you're in kindergarten. And somehow you've managed to figure out how to live life outside of a learning disability. You know, you got a master's degree in fluid mechanics. You're running a Navy lab, you know, research and development. You know, you did, you do all this stuff. You're creating a company that may change the world. And it's all because I was born with a disability. Like that's, that's awkward. So I told him, I said, well, tell me where I still have a disability. And he says, I've got a, I got something for you. And he, he thought about this because he's an audio processing disorder expert. But he said, Taylor, if I put you in a room with 99 people with Alzheimer's, and I came into the room, and nobody knows that anybody's different, but, but I came in the room, and I gave you instructions verbally on how to get to the place where we're going to eat dinner. He says, this is what would happen. The 99 people with Alzheimer's would probably know how to get to dinner because Alzheimer tends to be long-term and not short-term. And, but the problem is you would be convinced that you heard it right. You are the CTO of a Navy lab. You're young. You have a, a, a very agile mind. You have a high IQ. Like you, you for sure would say, hey, guys, you all have Alzheimer's. Sorry to say, but I heard that. And this is where we need to go. Left, right, left, 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 and we'll be there. And those 99 people would be like, well, I think I heard it right. But damn, this guy, he knows what he's talking. This is a leader. This is a leader, and this is a future badass. Okay, we're following Taylor. He says, that's how, Taylor, you can screw up society. And I was like, <laughs> How does that land in you as a leader of a company? <laughs> it makes me like very aware that I can't, like, I am great at high performance teams and I, I do not need to own anything. And I never take ownership for anything. You know, I, I lead a high performance team at work and Burble's a high performance team. And, and I think I've just learned not to be the, the loud, annoying guy trying to tell everybody where we're going because odds are I'm probably not right. <laughs> You've learned to remain obsolete and be creating the conditions for others to be successful in their roles as the team and not taking it all on yourself because it's going to go to shit fast. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of people learn a lot of hard lessons figuring that out as, you know, neuro, non-diverse, I don't know, like what people would call healthy normals. You know, yeah, for you, you just have, in some sense, you could call it a handicap. In some sense, it's a head start. Yeah, well, it's an awareness. It's not having the awareness that you still have to discover your superpower or being told you're normal is the biggest curse ever. It's the biggest curse ever. You literally have been told you can stop seeking. You are fine. You're just like everybody else. That's a curse. Yeah, it's one of the things that like prevents a lot of people from even beginning any kind of a therapy journey or self-exploration journey because they're just like, well, that's for people who are like all messed up and that's not me. I had a great childhood. Nothing was wrong. And yeah, no reason to believe that I have any limiting beliefs or that I have any, you know, unnecessary fears that I carry with me from the past that are blinding me to the reality and the opportunity in front of me. That's a massive. Yeah, that's why my parents will ask me, you know, why do you spend so much money and so much, you know, time and so many injuries and people have died like trying to pursue being a world champion in skydiving? And I'm like, because I want to know if I could be a world champion. Like, I, I don't want to be normal. I don't, I, I'm not normal, you know, and I, I enjoy it. I like being around my teammates and I'm going to become a world champion. So thousands and thousands of jumps later, 
you know, we're doing things at a very high level, you know, world-class level. And we ended up third in the world, uh, you know, at the world last world championship. So we're getting there. And does it pay? No, I'm not going to get money. I've spent all my money. Is it going to get me a job? No, I don't need a job. You know, I got a good job. Like people just have this hard understanding of understanding why do people strive to, to, to become something? It's because we're, I'm not stuck being normal. Like there's so many people that, that as long as they go to work, they come back to a family, they watch football at night and they, they take their kids to soccer. They're fine because they're just doing what everybody else is doing. And my God, I don't have that in me. Like I, they're not one speck of me can do that. Like I will go full speed to try to be a world champion of something nobody understands. And I'm going to start a company. You'd rather hang out in a torture chamber that you designed as efficiently as possible. I would rather design a torture chamber and see how long I can work at it before I go nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is so true. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I feel like our sports are sometimes our own, like, torture chamber of our own design. <laughs> what can I handle? <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I was doing a, a different podcast yesterday. You know, I got my new base rig. You know, I just finally came in and I'm crazy excited. I'm like, man, I'm 17 years in this sport and, you know, new gear. And it's like, so exciting. It's so exciting. I was recently describing to a friend that sometimes base jumping feels like you know, like the like the grown up version of kids playing with cardboard wings and Yes. Also at the same time Squid Game. Oh, that is a good way to put it. I like that. Yeah, because you know the dream is to stay a kid as long as possible. And I think there's some truth to that, except that, that we keep gaining experience and we keep gaining perspective. I've I've already told everybody that like the the currency we should all be striving for is not money. It's perspective. It and to get perspective you either have to experience things or you have to be talking to people or, or you have to be reading about things. But like, you know, when I say you read a book, you'd, you'd, you could do it in two ways. You could read a book to get it exactly what that person means, or you can take that perspective parallel to your life. And the whole time you're reading the book, you can start manipulating your life based on this perspective, right? And so I try to read books like that, you know, where I could read an Ender's Game and all of a sudden I'm a different engineer when I'm running, you know, this Navy Labs research and development. Not because Ender, I'm living life like Ender, but man, some of those perspectives were powerful. And I think that's what's different. Like we can be like kids, but we do it with that, that, that strengthened experience and perspective. And it honestly gets way more fun. It's way more fun than what a kid could come up with because <laughs> now you can literally do things. You know, like I'm a pilot, you know, I'm a, um, you know, a unicyclist and a, and a skydiver and a base jumper and a paraglider pilot, just probably like you as scuba diver. You know, I have all these licenses because I just can't stop learning. Yeah. And the kid would never have thought of all of those things. Kid might have thought of, you know, the one. So now that you're, you're moving into, you're moving forward with Burble and what are your next steps? What What is the stage of the company that you're at right now? And what are the next steps in your the building of this product and the growth of your market? And, and what do you need next? It's exciting. I'm in such an exciting place. So, you know, I've operated on $260,000 of convertible notes all the way to this point. So friends and family trusting me for a discount on an equity priced round, you know, they're getting a you know 20% discount. And um, people believe in this. And, and so I'm operating on that money. And, and it's led me to come up with a whole new redesigned business plan. So the last couple of weeks, I've been working super hard on building a, you know, right now it's a 68-page business plan that was just uh, last week approved by the board with minor corrections. So I'm doing those minor corrections. 
Once this business plan's done, I'm converting to a different round, which is going to be a safe round, which is still a discount round, except unlike a convertible note, a convertible note expires. It has interest over the years and, um, and the person in the convertible note can't set, you know, valuation caps. So a lot of big investors don't want to get into that because it's kind of scary because if all of a sudden I hold on to that convertible note through a billion dollar valuation, then you're going to get cheated, right? But if I convert that note at a million dollar conversion and then I become a billion dollar company, you're going to be in huge money. So so I'm opening up a safe round and then that forces me to use professional investors. So before I can write a, a waiver for all these people that were that didn't have a million dollars in their bank account and didn't prove that they were they were big investors. So there's some push to going on to the safe is a little bit harder on me, but they'll eventually set a big round. They'll, they'll set a valuation cap. I don't pay interest. There's no time frame that I can keep this for. So I'm going to try to raise uh, 2.1 million in the next, or one, yeah, 1.4 million in the next year on safes. And then if everything goes to plan on the rest of it, I will be valued pretty stinking high because I'm hoping to have a million dollars in sales on the autism tents this year. So then, I, then I'm, my, my plan is in 23, the beginning of 23, to step out of my super cush government job move into Burble full-time as the CEO and basically go for our first priced equity round. And so that would basically convert all of the safes and the and the convertible notes at a very good point that they're holding on to stock and then we can move on. And the way that we're building the company, we're, we're going to have to raise quite a bit of money, but I think I could become a $120 million company in five years on the very, very calm side on four and a half to $6 million of additional funding. So I'm not looking to raise a ton of money, but I am raising enough that I could become a big company. Now, reality happens if I go to any international market or my kids reading actually takes off, because one of the things we do is, is I have a full-time grant writer already, and I've already spoke with the superintendent of schools. I've already talked with the California Autism Board. There's tons of grants out there for mental health and disabilities, and autism is both of those, like surprisingly. So there's tons of money, especially in a COVID world. So I'm going to try to parallel the grants as I'm doing the money raising so that I can get the tents out there to more people for less money. And the, the grants are non-dilutable to my my stock. So, you know, I own 100% of the voting stock in the company. So I'm in a good position to do some stuff. So well, in the next two months, I'm going to be hiring a top line $150,000 project engineer, $130,000 software engineer. I know that's low in what I'm expecting for 10 years experience from these people, but I'm going to try to get it by giving them some voting stock, you know, so basically giving them some buy-in on the company, somebody that maybe has done a lot of good stuff that's looking for a company they believe in and they could own the product, you know, design it and then, uh, and then basically go with it. I've got the, the, the Riverside autism community that's super helpful. So I've got beta testers consistently. So as we design this product, we'll be getting it out and testing it and make sure it works. And then basically the tent that I'm coming out with for autism is a simplified version of the reading tent that I've got and the big apparatus that I've got in the Bourne's Youth Innovation Center. So hopefully we could do it a whole lot easier and get to that point and then break into the kids reading model tent in 2024. And once we go into that, that's going to be more sales to schools. And then if the schools work and the schools are showing proficiency in reading gains and comprehension and this kind of stuff, then I think it's going to take off like wildfire with with parents buying it because that tent will be $500 and have as many books as I can create. You know, Burble's going to be more of a content creation company than it will be anything else. It takes a writer, a sound engineer, and a lighting engineer together, which I call a pod, 
to create about a five minute story in immersion world every day. So if you're going to take an AR book, which is about 40 minutes of reading, then that one pod is going to take eight days to do it. So so you can imagine if we're trying to convert all these books, we're, it's going to be a, a powerhouse content creation company. And what's so great about it is it's like maximized creativity. These pods are, every book's going to be different and they have to invent their own sounds and invent their own lighting of movement and texture of light. So it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be such a fun company to be running. I'm really excited to see where you take it. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. To wrap up here, we're getting close to an hour now. So kind of wrapping up our time, I want to know, what do you have to say to anybody who may be wondering if they've had some form of you know, latent sensory processing disorder or something like that going on and that, or just some way that they've always felt a little bit abnormal. How, what, what do you have to say to them? Yeah, that's hard. That, and that's why, you know, I just got lucky and got insurance to cover a hundred. It, you know, it takes, according to Dr. Fogel, a hundred thousand dollars worth of testing for an adult to find out they have audio processing disorder. So really it's about just, just so being in tune with yourself. If you know you're not listening right, or you know you're not very good at remembering things, or you know you're not, you get stressed out when lights are flashing. You know, we just have to be so much better. And, and for me, it's therapy. For other people, maybe it's just good friendships. But, but it's just realizing we're not normal. No one's normal. I mean, I, I really don't believe that. And start getting around that. And the problem with the autism community, and I think this ties to all of us, is the autism community spends about $17,000 a year on on therapy, on physician appointments, on medication. Those are all like offsets, right? Like it's like the therapy is a good one, but medication is such a big expense for everybody. And the problem with that is we all get shoved into these normal categories again. It's like, okay, whatever you're dealing with, I know it's going to help if I put you on this medication. And it's like, okay, yeah, that helps me become more normal. Every time you take a medication to, to solve a problem that they didn't even know what the problem was in the first place, then you're just becoming more normal. You know, I was treated, you may notice, I was treated as bipolar for a year, you know, and I was heavily medicated. And that taught me a massive lesson about myself. Like, yeah, you can force Taylor to be normal. You can force me to be unbelievably normal, but it takes a shitload of medication. And then all of a sudden my company was failing. My work was saying, hey, you're not the out of the box guy that we wanted in this position. You know, things were falling apart. And I immediately got off all that. And my psychiatrist gave me some little information. He says, you know what, Taylor, I'll be honest with you, but except for the extreme cases where, where people do need medication for bipolar, or they do need medication for ADHD. A lot of the middle ground is kind of iffy. And he says, the entrepreneur that's about to change the world kind of looks bipolar, but they aren't, you know, and that's the problem is, is I may have, my emotions may go higher and lower than most quote, normal people. But that doesn't make me bipolar if it doesn't send me down a spiraling doom of death. And and we have to figure this out. But if everybody just is more sensitive. And society is uncomfortable with emotions sometimes. Emotions are horrible, especially in men, right? We're just told to like not use them. Mind-blowing. Smash the happy <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you and I do that. I know for a fact you and I do that. <laughs> i love my emotions <laughs> oh man that's good stuff brett that was a great conversation <laughs> yeah i really enjoyed it <laughs> such a good time really good to chat with you taylor yep for sure appreciate it appreciate the opportunity yeah you too take care <laughs> all right man have a good one <laughs> all right you too